Jupil Larsen, thank you so much for your contribution from Amsterdam. We have circulated uh, the papers to some few who might have been with us today had COVID not restricted the audience uh, today, and we've invited comments from them. And let me now put some of the points and questions that they've suggested to our panel. Um, all of us are still with us. Paul Johnston, the incoming British ambassador to Ireland, um, and the president said that to read history with respect for difference, but the incoming ambassador, Paul Johnston, asks us to consider the teaching of history in both our countries. Michael Laffin, as you're a long-time teacher of a third level, what is your opinion of how history is taught now and how it could be taught, perhaps improved, in, in our schools? Well, I, I taught history for over 30 years, um, and in that time there were an enormous number of changes. Uh, syllabuses were, were altered every five, ten years or so. Uh, there was, uh, I'm afraid, in UCD at least, my own university, somewhat less of an emphasis on British history than had been the case in earlier years. There was concerned with, with Asia, uh, with, with, with Africa, uh, America and so on. Uh, British history tended to become somewhat marginalised and also, and this I see as a serious fault, British history was seen in the context of Ireland. Uh, Britain appeared only when it was uh, doing something in Ireland and not when, for example, the Industrial Revolution was taking place. So I think there is a need for uh, an examination of British history quite independently of Ireland to, to study it uh, in its own right. And also, in reverse, uh, I think Irish history uh, can be seen uh, as part of the history of the four countries that formed part of the United Kingdom, three of them still in the United Kingdom, or three and a bit, uh, and that uh, the, the new tendency towards United Kingdom history, including Ireland up to 1922, rather than English history, which dominated for so long, that is, is an important element. And I think it, it, there has been great progress, and I think there should be even more progress in the future. And Dolan, what's your opinion of, of this, how we teach history here? No, I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd share Michael's um, views on this, because, again, British history is something that is neglected, I think, in, in my institution too. I mean, I think it's... Or, it's certainly even within Irish history, when we look at Britain and Ireland, it's often very much from the Irish perspective. And even just make, look, you know, getting students to look at something like the treaty, um, you know, getting them to think of it from the, the perspective of British priorities. But I think more excitingly, there's our capacity to ask different questions of maybe familiar things is, is very clear. And our students have access to materials that I certainly didn't have when I was a student and Michael taught me. The fact that they can sit at their computer and read Bureau of Military History Statements, Military Service Pensions, they can ask the complex questions, they can get to that level of the individual that I think Europe was talking about. And I think that's in a way central to asking and, and creating that kind of, of, I suppose, narrative hospitality really. Um, and that's possible now in a way that I think it, it wasn't even 10 years ago, never mind 30 years ago. Juppé yeah. Learson, do you have a view on this, how we teach history? I mean, you, your point about the Greeks uh, and the Turks and how each saw the other... Was, was interesting to it, because I think that could be a parallel between Britain and Ireland, too. Uh, absolutely, and it was intended as such. But um, uh, I, I cannot presume to say anything about teaching curricula in, in uh, Britain or Ireland, but what does strike me is that uh, in the world at large now, we really have a great need for history to be actually taught. Mm. And we have to create space for that in our curricula at primary, secondary, and tertiary level. Because more and more, people get stories from the past that are 
if I may call it like that, fake news. They get the epics, they get popcorn heroics, they get television serials. Um, and sometimes we see history being falsified as it emerges, even in these last few months. So there needs to be some form of academic calibrated um, narrative. And also we need to teach people to think critically and yeah. to realize yeah. that whatever you can say about the past, there, was, there were also differences. And the most important thing that I would feel in, in response to uh, the, the, the question is uh, the modern state needs to fund and accommodate more teaching of history in its school curriculum. President Higgins, would, what's your opinion on this and on its role at this uh, centenary? What I found very interesting, because it's something that wouldn't have happened some years ago, even just a few years ago, was that those contributing and responding to my paper were quoting E.P. Thompson. Now, I think there's a clue in that, and the clue is in relation to the common disability of the historiography, in both the case of Ireland and our neighbouring communities, uh, is the neglect of class. Because this is very important. I very much agree with, with Mike Laffin when he speaks about, like, let us say, the Industrial Revolution and so on. What is striking is, is that how difficult it would have been, and I, I, maybe I'm projecting now, for people, let us say, who had joined the RIC, the people who are in the, in the auxiliaries, to understand the class they came from. And this has always struck me as incredibly important. The big change that has taken place in history, I think, in both uh, places, is in fact people have become more extensive. But if you take, let us say, the British history, it's absolutely festooned with symbolisms of a particular power expression. But actually to get the history of the mining communities and what happens, to get the history of the people who were in the early days of the commercial revolution or the migrations that took place into the cities, that's quite weak. That Thompson does that. With Thompson's, with, with Thompson's acceptance of Thompson's approach to history is late enough. Maybe I'm, not, I'm outside of history, but to me, it's, he, I, I, I remember Thompson visiting Ireland and remember him speaking in Galway, but he wasn't regarded as mainstream then. But of course, he's a, a seminal figure. He's incredibly important. And the same thing is true in relation to, the, to, to Ireland, in a way. If after my paper and after the, the responses, people are at different levels of empowerment in having access to the kind of literacy in relation to historical events that I'm speaking about. And that has to be recognised. And in fact, not only are they somewhat excluded, but they actually can be preyed upon by, if you like, giving false versions of the past that actually stand in the way even of their own understanding and participation in the discourse. Can I move on to, a, I want to bring in uh, Kieran Benson on this. Dr. Johnston McMaster of the Irish School of Ecumenics, um, he says, as confessionalism has fostered division, should the churches publicly acknowledge their exclusionary and divisive role and set out their vision? of a reconciling pluralist and shared island? I think that's a very interesting point. I mean, I, I'm somebody who grew up with no history education in my Christian brother's school, and it was uh, the, the sense of the world I got, I got by osmosis rather than by instruction. Uh, and one of the things I learned greatly w w uh, was uh, in college uh, how 
profoundly important were the persistence of ideas in the construction of the sort of person I was. So when we come to the, the, the churches, um, I, in my experience, the, there was huge division. Uh, and the idea of, of the uh, common conversation that came in 62, 63 with uh, John Paul XXIII was amazing. But then it seemed to die a bit. And but had they a role now? That's the question. Yes, yes. absolutely. Uh, and uh, w there are new religions in here as well. I'm, I'm struck by the number, the proportion of the Irish population that uh, don't have any of this shared history. You know, they're new and they're bringing uh, uh, their own churches as well. So the, the divisiveness of churches uh, would certainly be assisted by some superordinate commitment to this. You, Bill Larson, do you want to come in on that, on the role that the churches might take well, now since they foster division for so long? Um, well, it depends what country you're looking at. Um, churches can play a very toxic role if their, um, their, their, their theology is aligned with the interest of the nation. They can also work in opposition. Uh, a church can be a very powerful mobilizer against a tyrannical regime. Um, so, um, and it's always the prerogative of the powerful to tender apologies. It's a bit of a fashion these days. Now, as we heard today, if you want to have reconciliation, the importance of an apology lies in empowering the victim to give or withhold forgiveness. If it's just an apology as a press statement, it, mm, you, you want to show some goodwill and, and, and uh, see how you can actually do things differently in the future. That's all I have to say for that. Uh, this brings up a point that Professor Peter uh, Sherlow, the Director of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool, uh, made in response to the President's paper. He recalled his own mother's invariable response to violence during the Troubles in emphasising always the grief of, as she heard the radio in the morning, uh, yet another mother, uh, her grief at this latest death. And he says, in that short sentence was a giant leap across the divide, his mother's words were, in effect, a commemorative act based upon a unity of grief. And he wants to ask us, how do we emphasize those acts of intercommunity protection and build them more firmly into memory? President. I think they're very important. And I think that uh, um, Andolan's presentation, for example, opening with a powerful image of the coach uh, I think was incredibly important uh, but also you see how connected it is to other kinds of exclusion if the woman's experience has in fact been neglected and if as I emphasize again there has been a very comprehensive uh, exclusion of class as an approach in Irish historiography and to, to some extent in British historiography too it's recent enough. And what you're there for is, is, is how could something as a very valuable expression of, uh, uh, of humanity and of being able to put oneself in the space of the other, it's connected to those two things, those exclusions of the woman's experience, the exclusion of class. And there's something I have to say as well about that, is that very often in the literature it's caught. If you look at the poetry... You will see, in fact, that the significance of these uh, moments and of these gestures can be made central in a piece that, in fact, actually, the narrative that is in a formally presented way that attaches itself to the larger events misses entirely. 
This is one of the reasons, for example, in relation to something quite different, in relation to the migrant experience that has been cut so perfectly in relation to literature of all kinds, but missed in the formal sociological accounts for a very, very long time. And why do you think that would be? I think it is the categories got frozen. Uh, this is again when I had in the paper a mentioning about unfreezing moments in history and unfreezing forms and approaches, forms of method. You have to actually keep it fluid in a way to allow that which was previously neglected in, but also, of course, to avoid missing again what, in fact, you should have been noticing in terms of complexity. That's why complexity is not, in fact, actually a model that is closed. Complexity must be, and I think Kieran makes the point in relation to memory as well, that you, there is a constant openness required and the possibility of revision. I, I had a line in one of my own poems, and I said that the only thing of which I'm certain is the impossibility of, of certainties. And this price paid for certainties uh, has been a very high one. And it's reflected ritually. It's been in relation to history as well, in both Great Britain and history here. The un unwinding of these certainties will be a part of the whole exercise, I hope, and will be the better for it. But that has happened, would you say, that, and that has happened, say, if you compare the centenary of celebrations with what happened 50 years ago yes. in the Golden yes. Jubilee, the, the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising, there's a, there's a huge change for the better, isn't there, yes, there in is. terms of complexity? Absolutely, and I think that, that you know, there's, there's a sense in which you know, we're, we're looking at different people and we're finding different people in the past, which that, in a way that forces that change. It forces us away from the big names and the big events. And I think one of the things I've been most struck by, which in a way was part of the sources I was looking at in the context of my response to the paper, like much of the evidence I'm looking at are people identifying a dead person, a person who's died in this period. And they're often identified by the official or by, the, you know, by a policeman or by a, a, an army officer as, you know, as a, a combatant, as a member of a particular battalion or whatever it might be. But then they're... they're if you like, their next of kin comes into, the, comes into it and says, that's my son, he was a carpenter, he was 28, he, was, yeah. you know, he had two children. Yeah. And in a way, I think we're coming at it now as very different historians too, in the sense that we're informed by things, as the President says, the history of class, but also things like the history of the family, the history of emotions. And gender. Th well. And gender, and we're thinking of people in these different ways. And I think one of the things that you know, is really important, and it's, I think it came through in the context of the centenary of the First World War, we saw a lot of people who had started to engage with genealogy at a, at a very public level. And in a way, that, that very basic steps of finding out about people in the past who were very close to you and very directly, directly related to you, that they did con what might seem like contradictory things. They could, they could be lots of different categories that, in a way, doesn't fit any easy narrative. And, and I think that has actually changed and made people more receptive to this idea of, of, of dealing with complex people in the past who don't really fit the easy labels that we sometimes call them in the history books and that makes this a little bit too straightforward. Michael Lappin, in, in, on the 50th anniversary, indeed, a colleague of yours in UCD, uh, the late Reverend Professor F.X. Martin, he talked about in a very celebrated article uh, the, the, uh, the national amnesia about those who... that, that, that those, So many thought they were in the GPO in 1916, but... You couldn't find people who, whose parents were in the RIC or whose families were in the, in, in the Great War to the same extent, and yet the, the ratio was 16 to 1. 
And, and very shortly before that 50th anniversary commemoration, uh, Jean Lamas, as Taoiseach, made a famous speech in which he paid tribute to the Irish soldiers in the First World War. And this was a breakthrough, particularly for Fianna Fáil Taoiseach. Uh, it is quite remarkable. Uh, you mentioned uh, F.X. Martin. Uh, in a volume that he edited at that time, Leaders and Men of the 1916 Rising, he included two chapters, one devoted to Edward Carson, another to James Craig, trying to bring in, even then in 1966, trying to bring in the Ulster Unionists into the story. So there were important things happening, opening up uh, 50 years ago, and, and uh, I think they should be remembered. Uh, it, it wasn't all bad back in 1966. It still took studies three or four years until 1972, or in fact, seven or eight years, to, to, to publish the article, Francis Shaw's That's right, article indeed, on Pierce. Yes. That, that was to be too sensitive at the time. Too, yes, yes. Um, on one point, I, I really compliment you, uh, you Learson, on your 1932 point, the, that the losers in the Civil War would have taken power in another formulation, obviously, as Fianna Fáil, but effectively the losers, the de Valera-led losers of the Civil War would take power. That, to a European view strikes you obviously as a major major point and, and achievement by both winners and losers that they had there was a happy transition through the ballot box at that time yes um, actually you see that um, in a lot of the commemorations and narratives that I encounter in Central Europe uh, in Poland um, or in Hungary um, people have a narrative that they got their liberty in 1918 and it was swept away by Hitler and Stalin uh, in the late 30s. And what is elided from that is the fact that they voluntarily gave up their hard-won liberty to dictator-type strongmen, Pilsudski in Poland and Horty in, in Hungary, and that this turned out, turns out to be a bit of a pattern. Um, and against that, Ireland really stands out. I mean, I, I didn't dream, it was Joe Lee who says this, and my mother-in-law who taught history, uh, in Dominican College uh, also made that point. So I'm, I'm echoing greater historians than myself. But in the European frame, it really stands out as something that is, is totally admirable. So there is something in Irish politics, traumatic and disruptive as they were, that had a great inner resilience and um, you know, something that also is worth commemorating. I, I have to disagree with that to some extent. President, yes. wonderful unanimity. I, I, I think the losers in 1932 uh, were the people who had been excluded altogether, such as, for example, the, the people who formed the government in 1932 are from a very particular class. From, they have a particular record in relation to rejecting the treaty and then changing their mind and entering politics. But you must ask, what about the agricultural labourers? You must ask, what about all the working class people who were being represented by the trade union movement? And the consistent view of the people who are in the, in the trade union movement and the labour movement, right through north and south, is that they try to find an alternative to the War of Independence. They make several attempts to end the Civil War. And then, in fact, when you want to make the very transition that is spoken about possible, they are the people who make it possible. But you also have something very interesting about who were the real losers. You get that, actually, through the 1930s. The 1930s is a horrific time. Because here you now you find the excesses of denominationalism. You find the women who had participated in the War of Independence are canvassing against the 
Treaty of 1937, or the Constitution of 1937, uh, which is so so ignorant, really, of the position of women. And you have, at that time as well, 1932, you go on to 1934, and the new government then brings in a 1934, it will review the pensions legislation, and it continues to ignore also, it continues in a very divisive way. The 1930s in, in, in Ireland are a horrific time. You have the, the whole series of, you have the whole questions of censorship, you have the burning of the, 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 the headquarters of some political parties in Dublin, you have sermons in relation to their just really telling people that you, a priest should have the power to stick you to the ground if you weren't obedient. So I don't see it quite frankly. I see the losers. The losers are in fact the social, those, all those, peop, those, those people who had hoped, look, okay now, we have the two combat, the two part, the two sides of what was originally a Sinn Féin version of something else, that they have come together to agree to hand over power. But outside of this, you had the, people, the housing issue, the unemployed issue, the people who were emigrating, the people, all the issues in relation to sexuality and so on. They were the losers. So what you had was something, to me, I, I, excuse me from holding back my enthusiasm from seeing it as a great and glorious moment. I see it as just further failure. Um, Michael Laffin, on the question of, of the the most oppressed people ever you, that you brought up. We did have a relatively easy time compared to Europe, didn't we, in our revolution? We, we did. Of course, if you, if you go back in history, uh, 16th, 17th centuries, we see massacre on a grand scale, and Ireland's experience then was particularly terrible. But Ireland is sometimes in the 19th century described as a colony, and of course there were colonial elements mm. in the British-Irish relationship. But no other colony sent members to the, the, the parliament of the colonial power. And by the end, by 1918, Ireland was grossly overrepresented uh, in, uh, in, in London and Westminster. So, uh, and of course, despite British negligence at the time of the famine, uh, and, and nobody could do anything except yes. criticize or deplore that, by and large, the British influence in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was very positive, and Ireland was doing quite well uh, against a terrible background, of course. So we got off much more lightly than, say, the Poles under Russians, Austrians, and, and Prussians, or Germans. Uh, things weren't all that bad, uh, which makes the revolution, in a way, quite surprising, uh, that, that uh, Ireland left the empire just at a time when Ireland had begun making a very grand profit out of belonging to the United Kingdom uh, as a result of uh, the, the uh, social welfare legislation, old age pensions and so on mentioned earlier. Yes. In general, are you optimistic that we can, through the decade of centenaries and the commemorations and so on, that we can get through this with, with, with better relations between Ireland and Britain and between North and South and that it can be a positive experience and that the complexity of the story will be better understood? I think so. Uh, my worry looking ahead to the next year or two uh, is the civil war and whether uh, discussions of atrocities uh, on both sides will bring about uh, the sort of hatreds that might destabilise a Fianna Fáil-Fine Gael coalition. 
uh, it might bring revive old old hatreds. But in terms, uh, your, your point, John, uh, in terms of British-Irish relations, uh, I think things will be uh, will will get better. And what is crucially important is that Irish people understand that Britain had its own legitimate interests at stake in, say, the treaty uh, negotiations in enforcing the treaty uh, after. Uh, it had been mm -hmm. voted on by the Doyle and by Parliament mm -hmm. in Westminster. This was quite legitimate from the British point of view. Uh, and if the Irish appreciate that, well, we are making uh, one more step towards uh, a better understanding between the Irish past and the British past. Um, Kieran, what's your view on that? Um, I, I was thinking about the question of history in schools uh, and the fact that uh, it seems to me it's a generalised thing. It's been diminished uh, across the world. I was astonished years back to see in Australia it was going, and uh, I see it here as well. And I know there's, uh, it's not compulsory in the way that it used to be. I think history is absolutely foundational, and I think people, peoples, and individual people become what they are by virtue of a long timeline of events and ideas. And uh, we need to we need to be reminded of what they might be. And for myself, I remember when I went to college first at Father Shaw's article in 68-69, that, that was astonishing to me. And then there was, I didn't know what revisionism was. Uh, so the fact that you could have this osmotically uh, arrived at idea of what Ireland was changed by a controversy as a young person was, was amazing. I'd love to see a, mo a much more interesting history uh, in the schools. And uh, President, what's your view of the role that history is now playing uh, through the commemorations. I mean, are you, are you optimistic about... The well, the most difficult point I had when I was involved putting together uh, papers for the previous period from 1916 on, I've already said enough about class, but I had a real difficulty about finding, getting attention to empire. And I do think we should have been looking at a kind of the context of what was happening in empires in the period, because it, it is very, very important. I do see a difficulty still that I, I haven't worked out, and that is uh, the, the sense of place and the intimacies of place. What has happened, people have taken, and this is, uh, I think, all the local histories, and the local history movement is terribly important, but it is very important that they bring in, if you like, the small stories and the intimate stories and to do it in a very general way. Because what has happened very often is that places and events, have, places have had embedded upon them, if you like, versions of history, which it is very, very difficult to change. There is very little revisionism possible in some of the places because people have, and the folk story has taken on a particular colour. Now, what there's a huge difference between doing local history, in which it is really local and inclusive and drawing on everybody who was in the locality, and, for example, someone who has taken a grand narrative and imposed it on a, a place of stones or on a bog or on a field or something like that, that's difficult. And we, I, we, when we come on to the further seminars, I'm sure it's an issue and I'll try to deal with it. But love of place, love of one's own yes. place is a very powerful sentiment and a positive one. For all, for oh, all absolutely. Sides. And this is another distinction, again, between the people, for example, in Parliament. And I refer in my paper uh, to the long spectrum of Irish nationalism. 
I, I, I made reference, for example, to the, to the trades and that, that, of which my father was one. And I really think what I find it quite astonishing is the people looking at who were members, for example, of the volunteers. Uh, if, I would love to see a, a good study on how many first so inheriting sons in the farms were members of the volunteers. And a huge overproportion of those who were working in shops, indentured people and people and so on, who took most of the risks. And when the new state forms, they are not the people who are in Dublin. Uh, they're not the people heading into the high offices of the state. So that long spectrum, uh, in my case, is very class-specific in relation to outcomes and very class-specific in relation to what would become the policies of the independent state, be it in relation to clericalism, be it in relation to equality, be it in relation to the idea of the public world, and very particularly in relation to the, the role of women in society. And these will be themes that you hope will be reflected in the next two seminars, isn't that? Oh certain? yes, I think the important part of it is is to have the scholarship in its richness and diversity, and how richer it is, and all the new people and people who are representing the neglected themes, and that they, I'm hoping, they, well, to make it as rich as uh, as I can. Yeah. So you'll meet Professor Dolan's point about. The, the fact that she was only one woman. Oh yes, and, and that would be simply yeah. because, quite frankly, we need we, we we had a specialist on memory and we had other difficulties in COVID. But my intention has been from the very 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 beginning is to have an equality of participation. And what I have to say as well is that some of the most significant writing I have been talked to, I quoted in my paper, are in fact from women historians, and we'll be hearing from them. Yes. Well, before we finish on the questions. Um, there are two from practicing historians. Not surprisingly, they are interested in archives, Jeremy Ferreter and Kat Katrina Crow. And they're wondering, um, in one case, the, mil the military service pensions collection and uh, the archives of industrial schools, um, Magdalen laundries, mother and baby homes. What challenges are posed by these archives in relation to remembrance and commemoration? Well, I think as far as I'm concerned in relation to archives, they are important not only for the formal studies, but they're important for all of the people mentioned in them, affected by them, and the communities that they're taken from. And I am from, I believe very strongly, that they must be, those that have been made accessible have been of enormous value. I think all of the others in relation to institutional archives, they should be opened up. And this is all part of again of the uh, of the, being able to deal with with, with to deal with the, what happened in a mature and 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 sophisticated way. I think that, that that's essential. I, I my own family's records are in the the, the military are in the the pension records that that you mentioned. And again, what I found there is is that there's some more detail on my father and my uncles but the position of my aunt for example who was between brothers and each side of the civil war uh, is that I, I was so struck really uh, by the, the, the way that women were dismissed in those in the in, in particular in relation to the, the pension applications women of all classes even widows of some of the principals and so forth differentiations between how they were treated can you imagine when you, when you had a situation where um, two widows for example would would have, 
their, their husbands are being remembered in different ways. But I think very particularly about people like my aunt, who, who was in Cumannamon, and, uh, and who simply said, how could I take a side when I had brothers on both sides? And bringing cigarettes to one lot before imprisonment to another lot, going on with an ass and cart to actually seek to make representations on behalf of her brother, who, who, who is in, in Ten Town. The, these women, they might be regarded as women who didn't matter enormously in the scheme of things, but they're the people who carried the texture and the experience of both the War of Independence uh, and also of the Civil War, and then what came after it, in, in, in a way. And it's not a good story, and, but I'm not saying it for out of any business. The time is to make sure that we, don't, that we make up for it, and that's why, of course, I would hope that you will find women participating, not just but in terms of their great strengths as well in all of the different areas. So, Anne Dolan, do you think that is, will be redressed in the coming years? I'm not saying just within this decade of centenaries, but future scholarship. Do you think there is an appetite there now for this story to be told? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the, the archives are central to that. The story can't be told without them. But equally, they can only be told... And I think we've led the way in this. We, we, you know, it's very striking when you go... You know, the archives here have, have been digitised, things like the census, the bureau, the pensions. They're being digitised, they're being made freely available to anyone who wants to look yes. at them. That is not the case uh, in, 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 in the archives in the UK, for example. You know, so I think we've, 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 been, you know, we've, been, we've done a huge amount of work there. There's a huge amount more to be done. And I think it's it, very the records are there for it to be done. Absolutely. I mean, I think we need to move a little bit beyond seeing the, the period maybe in, yes. in sort of chunks of centenaries, if you like, because I think the important work that needs to be done is to see how things bleed out beyond 1922-23. And, and let's start thinking about, well, let's see the records of the Land Commission, because in yes. a way that layered on top of the pensions yeah. let you see, if you like, the, the social history of 20th century Ireland for men, women you know whoever it's and I think it's only when we start to to sort of get access to those types of records we're actually facilitating it's back to to the points I think others have raised about the importance of history in at, at all levels you know at primary secondary third level it does you know across the board it's you know we're really facilitating people to ask the questions we we've moved past giving them finite definite you know, divisive answers. Yes. What we want to do is equip them with the questions yeah. to ask of those materials and, and let, them, let them find the past in their own way. And ways. ask their own questions Absolutely. and interrogate yes. the records Absolutely. better to answer yeah. those very questions. And they'll come up with questions we can't even think of at yes. the moment as historians of the period. Yeah. I ask you, uh, Yuppie Learson, finally, have you any comments to make on our discussions we've had here looking at it through Dutch eyes? No, it was very instructive, um, and I, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, commemorations are a, and centenaries are a way of schematizing history in all European nation-states, and the way this is being done here in Ireland is exemplary. Um, what I like in the, as a takeaway from the last bit is the importance of um, the archive, but also of, if you like, Irish orality, the stories. Um, with the military archives, the personal narratives have become formative in, in, in refreshing historical views. Um, and one would hope indeed that the archives and the public are no longer separated by the academic historians who write big books about them, uh, but that they can become themselves a platform for commemoration and for popular uh, memory, for public memory. Thank you, Juppé, very much for joining us from Amsterdam, and thanks also to 
our guests uh, here who read papers and who have contributed to this discussion. 